Count your blessings. Thank you. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you. We shouldn't be, but we often are. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. Well, I hope you're having fun today. This is fun. This is great. I was born for chaos, man. I'm very comfortable in this chaotic environment. Um, it's good to know for that for from generation to generation, our God is faithful, and he's continuing to do his work. But as we've had this morning, there are always challenges. That's part of life. Part of life. And I hope that today, as we spend time in God's Word, we can recognize and embrace opposition and trust God for opportunities. Because those things seem to go together, don't they? Opposition and opportunities. And when we read this morning in, in uh, Acts 18, we will see opposition and opportunity, opposition and opportunity over and over again. And my prayer, as I've been preparing and praying about today, is that you will, you will see life through those lenses, that wherever there's opposition, there is always an opportunity for God to reveal himself, for God to do his work in our lives, and for us to grow and to learn. You might be pessimistic in nature, you might be optimistic in nature. Some people say, I'm a pessimist, but I'd prefer to be called a realist. So let me give you a good definition of all of those things. Warren Wiersbe says, A pessimist sees only the problems. An optimist sees only the potential. But a realist sees the potential in the problems. I think that's a good definition. A pessimist sees only the problems. An optimist only the potential. But a realist sees the potential in the problems. So let's go to God's word. Acts 18, verses 1 to 17. I've been told, by the way, in no uncertain terms, that I have to finish the book of Acts before I leave. Um, I'm just here to tell you that ain't going to happen. So don't hold your breath. Um, there's just no way. I mean, we're flying. We're actually flying. We're in chapter 18. You know, We're flying. 28 chapters. We've got 10 to go. <laughs> but we don't want to be in too much of a hurry. Um, and it's just good to be in God's Word. So let me read you uh, Acts 18, 1 to 17. After this, after what, you may ask. And if you do, good question. Remember, Paul was in Athens. He was at the Areopagus. He was with the influential, the intellectuals. He was presenting the gospel to them. And when he finished his address, he left the council. And Acts 17, if you just jump up uh, the page, you'll see that some believed. A member, Dionysius, a member of the council, Damaris, a well-known woman, influential woman, and, and others. So after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth's a big, sprawling, influential, materialistic, hedonistic, immoral city. Sound familiar? Should ring a few bells. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, Claudius, the emperor, the Roman emperor at the time, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Opposition. Once again, the Jews are being hounded. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, he was, tent maker is a sort of umbrella term for leather work, so, but tents were made out of leather in those days. They were very hardy, very durable, and uh, the climate control was quite amazing. 
because he was a tent maker, he stayed and worked with them. They had the same trade. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And that does not surprise us about Paul. That's what he did everywhere he was. When it speaks about Greeks here, it's speaking about the people uh, of the city, the Greek-speaking people. It could also refer to Greeks who were God-fearing, not Jews, but um, considering following um, Christ or Judaism at the time. But there he was amongst them. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. They brought a financial gift that actually enabled him not to have to do the tent making and to focus solely on the work of the gospel. He devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes and protested, like shaking the dust from your feet. He shook out his clothes and protest and said to them, listen to this, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door. It was a short trip. Went next door to the house of Titius or Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. Hallelujah. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Wow. So Paul's given for that season, not for the whole of his life. He actually died by um, beheading. Because he loved Jesus, so that, that protection wasn't physical. That's how he died. Some people said that Paul was so crazy about Jesus, he completely lost his head. That's what they say. But in this time, he's given this assurance. Don't, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half. It's probably the second longest time he stayed anywhere. The only time he ever really slowed down, we discovered, is when he was in prison. And that's when he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So that's good. But for him to stay in one place for any period of time is quite significant. So this is a significant stay. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Roman um, governor, basically, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Ironically, it was not at all contrary to the law. It was a complete fulfillment of the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, so he's the he's governor, he's the judge in this case, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor, or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, not Roman law, but Jewish law, 
Settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. He got kicked out. Wasn't good news for Sosthenes. Try to say that word three times in a row fast. Sosthenes. They all turned on Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue ruler, and beat him to a pulp. I beat him in front of the court, probably, probably severely. But Gallio, the governor, showed no concern whatever. See, the Romans were really only concerned. This is how the Roman Empire worked. They were really only concerned if what you believed affected what they believed in the sense that you weren't willing to. You know, the Romans had a very simple policy. Be reasonable, do it my way. That's how it worked. So if you played along, you know, you could do your thing. So they weren't even bothered about this because they had nothing to do with them. So that one backfired. So here we have a number of cases where we could describe them, summarize them as opposition and opportunity. And as we start to unpack and just touch some of the highlights here, there's, there's these things we're going we're gonna, to, I'm going to remind you, you know all these things. I'm going to remind you about these things. And hopefully we can use them today. Pray, I already pray we can, to, to really refa- reframe the way we see things. Life, you know, is crazy, and every Sunday we get a chance to just step back, get into the Word together, refocus. So let me start by pointing out that God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. Paul's in Corinth, he's left Athens, he's probably quite tired, quite exhausted, he's got to work do his trade to earn a living. Every Jewish male, by the way, had to learn a trade. Whether you ended up as a Pharisee, a scribe, a rabbi, you had to have a means by which you could support yourself and your family. The biblical work ethic is very clear. We know what Paul says in Thessalonians, if a man shall not work, will not work, he shall not eat. Now that's that's speaking against laziness and this, you know, entitlement attitude. So every Jewish boy, when they were trained in Scripture, learning the Torah, they were taught a trade. It could be carpentry, tent making, farming, any number of things. So he was doing that, and he discovered this couple who had run away, had to run away from Rome under the fear of death, and he met with them. You know, we say, we use the language, oh, I, I bumped into so-and-so. In the kingdom, there's no such thing as bumping into people. God's timing is always perfect. He's ordaining, he's orchestrating, in the best sense of that word, our lives. So we've got to be alert. We, we often think God's way behind schedule, you know. He's forgot about me, he's forgot about that. No, his timing is absolutely perfect. And he brings... These three people together, Priscilla and Aquila and Paul, and they work together, which is very important because in, in, in the first century AD, all of these different trades had guilds. They were like trade unions. And if you wanted to get work, you had to belong to the guilds. Problem being a Christian is you're not willing to say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord, and you're not willing, should never be willing, to bow at the altar of convenience or of profit. And in every marketplace known as the Agora, there'd be a a little shrine, 
And if you wanted to do business in that marketplace, you would have to go take, buy some incense, throw it into the little flame, it would psh, big puff, and you'd declare your allegiance to Caesar, and you'd declare your allegiance to the patron god of that area or of that trade or of that guild. Obviously, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila were not willing to do that. So business was hard to come by. But they were able to encourage each other. And when we see how God lines us up, there's a very beautiful word that we use. We talk about God's providence. God's providence. God is providential. It means that he is orchestrating. He is lining everything up. He's, everything is planned. We're not robots. But the scripture says, every day you plan for me is written in your, your book. Before one of them came to be, Hebrews 12 says, let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The journey you're on and the place where you are right now is part of God's purpose for you. The challenge and the difficult times, the times of loss and trial, is to see that truth. But it's true nonetheless. God's timing is always perfect, and God, in his providence, brings us along that path, and we have these encounters. So we can say as Christians, we must say there's no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing. No, stuff doesn't just happen. God is at work to will and to do according to his good purpose. Again, Scripture tells us that. My dad used to tell me that when, if you're a Christian, there's no stray bullet. All the days ordained for me. My birth, my death, and all the in-between has been planned out. And what a joy. It's kind of like, kind of like you know, the scratch cards, kind of lottery thing. We uncover what's already there. We don't, we don't think anything up. You know, I hate to tell you. We've, man's never thought an original thought. It's already been thunk by God. But we uncover. Whoa, look at that. Yo. What's, what's, God's always up to something. What's it going to be next? So God is doing that. So there's no stray bullet. Nobody can... Nobody, I, we often say when somebody dies and it seems too young for us, always too young, isn't it? Seems too young for us, an untimely death. For the believer, there's no such thing as an untimely death. And there's no such thing, even in your times of meaninglessness and purposelessness and confusion, there's no such thing as a wasted day. All the days planned for me. The journey, the adventure for us is to What's on your agenda today, God? What's on your agenda? I know you've got a plan. You've created the universe. You sustain it by the word of your power. I'm signing up for duty today, reporting for duty. What's the plan? And I love the saying, you know, we talk about God's time. It's, we say it's the 11th hour and and somebody has said God is always catastrophically late. <laughs> According to my, you know, I mean, I'm on a deadline here, Lord. But, you know, he created time. He can do what he likes with it. But his timing is always absolutely perfect. And because of that, encouragement comes at just the right moment. Paul needs encouragement. 
Priscilla and Aquila need encouragement, and God brings them together. Their paths cross, and they meet and they connect. Imagine working away there with Paul, and while you're while you are doing your trade and you're learning from each other and helping each other, you're having a Bible study. He's teaching, he's telling his testimony, he's hearing their testimony, he's, he's teaching them the scriptures, he's guiding them. What an amazing, amazing opportunity. So Paul was a scholar and a tradesman. But you know, so was Jesus. Jesus was a tradesman. We say it was a carpenter, it was probably more carpentry and stone, working in stone. So sort of, again, an umbrella term. And that's why I like to call Jesus our blue-collar God. God knows what it's like to be in the trenches. God knows what it's like to take calluses and cuts. I wonder if he ever hit his thumb with a hammer. <laughs> and if he did. Huh? <laughs> if he did. I wonder what he said. <laughs> but he knows, he knows manual, he knows sweat, he knows labor, he knows toil. Jesus chose, we live under the curse because our first mother and father fell. Jesus placed himself under that. Sinless, righteous, holy, eternal, infinite. He placed himself under that yoke to reach us. And so how beautiful when Jesus says in Matthew, come to me all. Come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I know what it's like to wear a yoke. I know what it's like to toil. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to suffer. Jesus carried our sin and he was sinless. He knows better. He knows humanity way better than we do. And he calls us to take on his yoke. But he says that yoke is easy. It's easy and the burden is light. But our blue collar God, he is so accessible. He's, he's amongst us. He's within us by his spirit. And he's at work. His time is always perfect. Let's, let's embrace that reality. Let's not just acknowledge it as a spiritual truth. Let's absorb that. Let's take it on board. Let's let it settle. Let it sink in. It will change the way we see our lives and the way we see God. And he appears, man, he appears to... He appears in a dream. This is one of the rare occasions where we have the recorded words of the risen Jesus. This is after the resurrection, after the ascension. Here's the thing, folks. Jesus is still speaking. He's still meeting people. He's appearing in dreams and visions. We have many testimonies of that from the Muslim world, the Buddhist world, the Hindu world, all over the place. So here we have in Acts 18 the very words of Jesus. It's amazing. And what are they? What is the God of the universe? The risen, glorified King of Kings sitting on the right hand of the Father. He speaks into Paul's heart, into his life, into his circumstances, and he says, do not be afraid. 
You need to hear that today. Hear that from the Lord. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And here's the best of all. This is the best part. For I am with you. What else does a saint, a believer, really need to know? The presence of God. I am with you. Warren Wiersbe, I like quoting Warren Wiersbe. He's got such quotable things. So I use them a lot. It's just like our Lord to speak to us when we need him the most. His tender fear not can calm the storm in our hearts, regardless of the circumstances around us. That's how God works in many testimonies. God reassured Paul numerous times. How much more do we need it? If the great apostle Paul needs those words, you might think, well, I want to see, I would love to see Jesus. I'd love for him to come speak to me. Important note. Here's a little, it's not a disclaimer. It's just a very important little thing. Most of the time we have record of Jesus appearing to people, speaking to them. They have been in the absolute pit of suffering. Personal, physical, spiritual, absolute pit. And there's nothing wrong with longing for this kind of encounter with God, but just remember there's a, read the fine print. It's very possible he can appear and speak to you when you're sipping a martini, you know, on a poolside, you know, in a seven-star resort. It's possible, but it's not likely. But when believers are in suffering, as we've said before, when you're so low, you have to pull your socks down to see the world. That's when God appears to people. And so while we gloss over this, this was a low point in Paul's life, but God reassured him. Elijah, when he had that amazing encounter with God in the wilderness, trekked 40 days. God appears. Remember, God wasn't in the storm, not in the earthquake, not in the wind. It was a small, still voice. Here's the thing. It's not that God doesn't speak anymore. It's we're in too much noise to hear the small, still voice. So if I say, God never spoke to me like that, I'm saying more about myself than I am about God. Listen for the, tune in. Tune a lot of noise out. And tune in to the living, resurrected king who is at work. His timing's always perfect. He is providential. One more big lesson from this passage. They go together. They really do hand in glove. God's purpose, God's purpose is always the priority. God's purpose, not mine, not yours. You know, we always, we often ask the question, or sometimes we ask the question, what's God's will for my life? It's actually two questions, not one. 
And the first question is, what is God's will? And the second question, we have to rephrase that. And how does my life fit into that? What is God's will? God's will, it's God's always about his own glory. And if you have a problem with that, just spend some time on your knees. Get into the Psalms. The amazing thing is that he calls us to be a part of that great plan. And each one of us has a unique role to play in that plan. The greatest purpose of our lives is to seek Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek his glory in your life. It'll sort out a whole lot. It'll prioritize your whole prayer list. You know what I discovered as soon as I started seeking first the kingdom of God? I took that command, Matthew 6.33, seriously. I, I realized that my stuff was right at the bottom. Before I took 6.33, Matthew 6.33, seriously, my stuff was always at the top. And I realized one day, because I'm slow like that, it takes me a while. My stuff's always at the bottom. And it's much better that way. And you know what? By the time I get to that stuff, oh, Lord, you got this. I don't mind. There's something about which I've been praying for years. Not, not nagging me, I just, I just remind myself, you ask the Lord for this, just leave it with him. There's a few things, obviously. One of them, I got a little clue out of the blue the other day that maybe it's, maybe it's on. Can't tell you that. Because it's just a little clue. And I went, what? I'd forgotten about that. Ooh. All right, all right, calm down, calm down. At the bottom. His purpose is always the priority. God, what are you up to? He's up to his glory. It's all for his glory. That's the frame of our lives. Everything in your life and my life, we must see it in the context and within that frame. If you have to, don't have that frame around your life, you're all over the board. You're all over the place. It's just, it's a jigsaw puzzle without the edge. That's the only part of a jigsaw puzzle I can do. You know? So imagine having a jigsaw puzzle without any flat pieces, and number two, without the picture on the box. We think God's obligated to give us the picture on the box. We just get the... We talk about God being sovereign. God is sovereign. That means, here's my working definition. God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. But that does not mean that God's a dictator. That does not mean that God is malicious or evil. God is good, full of grace and mercy. But he's in charge. He doesn't have to have a board meeting. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always on the same page. Doesn't put stuff to the vote. He is sovereign. But that's governed by a whole lot of other qualities or characteristics about God, one of which we've looked at already. 
is providence. So he's, he's at work in all things. Romans 8, 28, get this, God's at the beginning. Not all things work together, that's fatalistic. God is at work in all things. He's the God of all the things. And he's at work. What's he do? What are you doing, God? God is at work in all things for those who serve him, love him, and serve him according to his purpose. So if you want to know God's will for your life, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and do what he wants you to do. That could mean just helping someone across the road. Or calling someone. Or caring for a stranger. Or acknowledging an invisible in our community. Maybe a homeless person, or a cleaner, or a cashier. Let's start small, you know? Not, they're not small, but our thinking. We need to start there because we're babies. We've got to grow. God is sovereign. Every crisis, because God's purpose is always priority, every crisis is an opportunity. Opposition, an opportunity. Opposition, an opportunity. Every crisis is an opportunity for three things. Glory of God, number one. The growth of the church. I will build my church. And for the good of his bride. That's you and me. We are part of the body of Christ. You are part of this body. We are part of the body of Christ in this community, in the fraternal. We're part of the body of Christ in Johannesburg. Get the pictures of Africa. Africa. The world. Might seem like a very small part. But we're a part of the greatest adventure known to man, which is the glory of God. And God is glorified through the spreading of the gospel. Yes, he's glorified when we worship him in the dark. Well, that was fun, man. I'm going to organize a power failure again. Um, that's great to worship here, in but God is glorified. Let the nations be glad. Dr. John Piper's book, it's in the library. Let the nations be glad. God is most glorified when unsaved come to Christ. When the unsaved come to Christ. When the enemies of God become his children. That's how God chooses to glorify himself. And that's why missions should be the heartbeat of our lives and the heartbeat of a church. These doors open for one purpose. That's to fulfill a great commission. It's so easy to decide that. We get sucked into all kinds of other things. Good things. But what's the best thing? Make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey everything I've taught you and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there comes the promise, and then I'm with you always. Here's a great statement by Francis Bacon. This one you're going to have to take home with you. You're going to have to work on this one. Think about it. Prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament. Material prosperity. Adversity is the blessing of the New Testament. Prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament. Adversity is the blessing of the New. It's very interesting that this, this governor, Gallio, unwittingly, I, I mean, it was all about himself. Most politicians are. Remember, 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 if a political party or a country's name 
has people in it. It's not about the people. It's not. And if a political party or a country has the word democratic in it, it's definitely not about democracy. It's really easy to work out. The People's Republic of Northern Korea. I rest my case. I rest my case. Those two words appear in the manifesto. See it for what it is. So he was just doing his own thing, being happy to be the boss of, of, you know, of town, of the region. He wasn't interested in these crazy Jews. But what he actually did was authorize the church. Because he threw out the charge against the disciples making disciples and teaching about Jesus and the resurrection. He threw it out of court. So what he actually did was legitimize missions and church growth. I'm sure he had no intention of doing that. But when Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, released the people of God from exile, he had no intention that the nation was going to reestablish itself, rebuild the temple. Because that's what, see God's sovereignty, see his providence. Right, now as we wrap this up, Let me ask you a question. Any chance of facing some opposition at the moment? You know? Have you ever had a day? Have you ever had a day where there was no opposition, no challenges? You were probably on an anesthetic or in a coma <laughs> if that, you know, if that's the case. We shouldn't be surprised when we have opposition. It's in Scripture. If they, in this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. But be of good cheer, be of good heart, be encouraged. I've overcome the world. If they've persecuted you, me, they'll persecute you. Paul says to Timothy, Second Timothy 3, I think. I can never remember that reference. Anyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I guess I'm not godly enough. That's my conclusion. Because I'm not experiencing any persecution. But we experience opposition. All kinds. All kinds. Have you seen the opportunity? In that opposition? Are you fighting against something or someone when you should be fighting with Jesus? Remember, people are not the problem. People are not even the enemy. We have one enemy. That's Satan. The only enemy we have. So, in your opposition, in your challenge, have you seen the opportunity? Have you asked the question, God, what are you up to? How should I respond? I'm reacting, I'm reacting. How should I respond right now? So it doesn't, you know, don't be a pessimist, don't be an optimist, be a realist. Because it's not about the glass being half full or half empty. I don't know who came up with that. It's only half, whatever way it is, half full or half empty, it's only half. 
I missed that part. But what does the psalmist testify about his glass, his cup? Does he say it's half full or half empty? Oh, you've read that. You've read that. So is your glass half full or half empty? It overflows. Did you know it was overflowing? It's overflowing. God is good all the time. He's always working in us and through us for his glory. For the good of the church, the growth of the church, and the good of his bride. And that includes you and me. So let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, how we thank you. You are so good. You are so patient with us. As your word says, God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting all to come to eternal life. Lord, may every person here be able to say, because of you, Jesus, my cup is running over, overflowing with your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love. May we come to the place where, like James, we can consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds because we know God is at work. And may we give ourselves, Lord, heart and soul to joining you in that work, the work for your glory and reaching the nations with the only news worth the front page. It's a whole newspaper. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the people rejoice. Amen.